Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we live in the future. Uh, I'm your host, Lauren Humphreys-Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. The future really is now. The future is now. It is. (laughs) Hello. How are you? I'm pretty good. It is it is a love actually a lovely day here in New York City. I think the last time we recorded is like it is hotter than than hell. It is hotter <laughs> than the the whatever the second circuit because it actually gets hell actually gets colder the deeper you go. Like it's really cold in the center. Not many people <laughs> realize that. Um, I think it's according to Dante. Or something yeah, like they gotta that. read more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, but the outer circle is really fucking hot, and there's like the lake of fire and all that stuff. Anyways. Uh, yeah, it was it was the lake of fire uh, a little while ago, and now it's not, which is really nice. So well, that's, that's good. good. How about you, Karen? How are you? You know, it's a very lovely morning here as well. It's uh, seventy degrees, on, and which is you know not what it's been the last couple of weeks. <laughs> so uh, we'll see how long it lasts. But um, yeah, it's great, and yeah. it's today is officially the last day of my vacation i have to go back to work tomorrow i'm a little bit sad but also i love my job so it's fine but yeah today's the day that i gotta finish all the things that i didn't get done over the last two weeks (laughs) whenever you're whenever you go on vacation so i was just like so i'll do all of this stuff then it's just like oh i have one day left i should probably do all that stuff (laughs) yeah yeah i made a list like my vacation to do's because i was doing basically a staycation but i had some things that were planned like um I had some friends from out of town and we went to Disneyland for three days, which was so much fun. Um, I've never, I've lived, I've lived within an hour of Disneyland other than when I lived out of state. I've lived within an hour of Disneyland for pretty much most of my life. And I've never gone there three days in a row. (laughs) So, uh, so that was, it was fun, but it was also like, oh, by day three, it was like, can we just sit on the curb and people watch? Like, this is nice. (laughs) so but it's been really fun but yeah I didn't get done a lot of things that I was so sure I was going to do (laughs) must be nice to just just like I'm just gonna go to Disneyland yeah it is I I I was looking at some of your pictures actually and I and I was just like what you know the the concept of having that kind of a theme park that close just Mm -hmm. doesn't register with me and I mean I've lived I've in in the United States I've lived in New York um, I've never lived that close to a theme park. So the whole concept is just very foreign to me. <laughs> I used to live walking distance, actually. And there were wow. a few times that because at that point I had an annual pass and uh, my friends, I had, you know, roommates and stuff. We would just go all the time. And it's you have to be into it. Like for me, I love, you know, aside from the predatory capitalism of it all i i love there's just something for me that's really magical about disneyland and Mm -hmm. um and so i love it so i i can just sit 
and sit on a bench <laughs> on main street and just watch people go by and just watch kids just so, you know, just their giant eyes, just so excited about things. And, you know, I, I really do love that and I never get tired of it. Um, but it also isn't for everybody. And I recognize uh-huh. that, you know, yeah. I have friends that are like, I don't ever want to set foot in that place. It's like, okay, you know what? I respect that. And don't come. If you don't want to go, don't go. Cause you'll spoil it for other people. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, no, it was great. It was my, my friends and their two girls. And we just, you know, just got to do all the things. Everyone had a good time. Nobody fought ever. You know, the weather, it got hot, but it was never it it was left, luckily it was so much cooler than a couple weeks ago so it was uh-huh. the perfect time to go and uh yeah it's just nice cool that sounds yeah. great how have things been for you i know your vacation's over and you're back to work yes i am back to work unfortunately but um it's it's been fine like i'm just i'm just getting back into the the groove of things and i managed to i managed to do what i often do to schedule myself stupidly uh <laughs> but it's okay everything's okay <laughs> your boss is a real hard ass sometimes i know i sc- my boss really overscheduled me this this month <laughs> and um and i was just like who the fuck did this schedule who did this <laughs> i think they should be fired it's really terrible so yeah <laughs> but but it's it's been kind of a weird week sort of a bunch of weird different things i got a new tattoo um which I was, which was fun. I like getting tattoos. Uh, otherwise, I would not have them. But it means that it like it looks the, so good too. Thank you. It means it means that the week was kind of odd in a certain sense because I, for anyone who has ever gotten a tattoo, I think my experience of them is that there's always like this. You get really excited, and then you get the tattoo, and it's just like, oh, I'm exhausted now. Um. So yeah, it's an interesting experience. Yeah. Fun. So. Today we're gonna have an a uh, a conversation about uh, about the, I don't know how to put this day I call it days of future past yeah and it, essentially what we wanted to talk about was because we talked about AI um, last week and we talked about like different representations of AI in cinema and now we kind of want to talk about the representations of the future in cinema we thought it would be interesting Karen suggested this thought it would be interesting to um, discuss films that are that that take place in the future for the year of the film but are actually now in our past so the three yeah oh i was just gonna say the other phrase i had thought of was the tomorrow of yesterday (laughs) (laughs) just reminds me of a bob's burgers episode just like tomorrow is yesterday tomorrow is today's yesterday or something like that No, today is tomorrow's yesterday. There we go. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so the the so that's the idea behind this. So, the three films that we're going to talk about are 2001: A Space Odyssey, um, Soylent Green, and Back to the Future Part Two. And I kind of wanted to go in chronological order based on the year that the film is is set. So, we want to start with 2001, which actually goes to the very, very deep past for at least part of the film. Mm-hmm. And then fast forwards to a very distant future for 1968, <laughs> but fast forwards to 2001. Um, and and I think that this, this is probably of the three films that we're talking, actually all three of these films are iconic in their own ways, but this is probably the most iconic 
Um, it's one of those films that everyone has seen, whether or not you enjoyed it or whether or not you paid attention to it is an open question. Um, Cause it isn't, it's such an iconic film, but it isn't an easy film by in, yeah. in any sense. I don't think it is quite as difficult as, as some people make it out to be, but I, I think that one of the issues that you run into when watching this film is that there isn't a solid plot. Like the most plotted element of the entire film is the central section of the HAL 9000 kind of adventure, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that's where there's the most dialogue, there's the most like actual, you know, this creation of tension and like the most kind of traditional narrative um, throughout the entire film. But it's, in some ways it's a very straightforward film and in some ways it's an incredibly complicated one. And so, talking about it is kind of weird because it's like okay so what happens in 2001 a space odyssey well human beings evolve <laughs> from sort of ape-like creatures basically at least that's the way that they're represented and um there's a monolith and then there's a computer ai that becomes murderous and and then we become star children apparently so that's kind of the plot of 2001, but of course that's ridiculously simplified. So Karen, you said that when you uh, watched this film again, that like you've been waiting for this film to kind of click with you and that it finally did. Mm -hmm. So do you want yeah. to talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I, I've seen this a bunch of times. I honestly don't even know how many times I've watched it. Um, a couple of years ago, they actually did an IMAX release of it. Um, and so, you know, so it was like a 70 millimeter IMAX thing. I was like, I have to go check that out. You know, this is, it really is an iconic film for a lot of reasons, um, mostly for the visuals. And every time I've watched it, I've thought, you know, I know that this is, I mean, it's in the top 10 for sight and sound, you know, their most recent poll um, of critics. It, it frequently comes up. It's like one of the highest uh, rated, I guess, movies, sci-fi movies, of all time still to this day it's very um uh it's been it's been borrowed from heavily it's been um um what's the word i'm looking for parodied it's you know like this is a movie that is frequently referenced and homaged and every time i've watched it i've just been like i recognize that it looks very good and and that there's a lot to it but it just never really clicked for me but i mm -hmm. it was also one that I wasn't going to give up on because I always knew that at some point I would watch it and that would be the time I'd finally be like, okay, now I get this movie. Now I feel this movie and I understand why everyone loves it so much. And that actually happened for me last night, <laughs> which <laughs> it's so interesting that it was like this, this viewing, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I was just, I was sitting at home and turned it on. It's currently streaming on max. And I turned it on and, you know, I think one of the things that helped is I read a couple of, of um, like one essay and then a couple of just short blurbs of people's thoughts about it and why, you know, just like really quick thoughts about why they liked it. And so I went into the movie kind of with other people's perspectives mm -hmm. and, um, and so I was watching it and it was all the same things that I've, that I've seen, you know, multiple times before, but it just, I just was really a lot. I was a lot more engaged in it. It didn't feel like this um, homework assignment, I guess. It felt like I was just sitting down ready to immerse myself in this in this very Kubrick world 
And I just, I let it just kind of wash over me. And I really, this was the time, like, I really enjoyed it. I thought, man, this really is a fantastic film. Mm -hmm. It says so much about humanity and about, I'm trying to, like, this is still fresh for me. So I'm like trying to figure out the right way to word it, but it just, uh, I just, it, it really felt like now this is, this film has now resonated with me and now I, I can really appreciate um, what it is other people have appreciated for, you know, 50 years, 50 mm-hmm. plus years. Well, it, it is, it's such like, like I said, it's such an odd film in a lot of ways because it isn't, it isn't very plot driven. Um, right. It's, it's very visual and, you know, people have talked about the, the, like you said, the visual aspects of it and how deeply influential it is um, in terms, I think that we will talk about that in a minute about the aesthetics of 2000, 2001 being really probably, probably one of the most influential sci-fi films ever. Um and and yet you you've got this like somewhat difficult thing to kind of parse out i i've heard people talk about it's interesting that that this was the viewing that kind of convinced you because i've heard people talk about well this is a film that you have to see on the big screen and i could kind of see the argument there given that it is so it's so slow in many ways and it's so dependent on that building up of the visuals and the kind of willingness to immerse yourself in what you know, what Kubrick is showing you. And a lot of it is what is being shown, but also being heard as well. There's a lot of, um, not just the music, but the ambient sound, the the choices that he makes about where there's sound and where there isn't sound. Um, mm. And and so much of that I can definitely, so much of that I can definitely imagine would be a, um, a major factor in terms of seeing it like on the big screen. That wasn't your experience. <laughs> no, yeah. I don't know. It's 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 really weird. I I I honestly I think it was and this is this is an argument this has been something that has been back in the conversation the last couple of days. I really think this is a perfect case for why we need film criticism, not just influencers, um, but film criticism. Cause I really think that reading stuff from intelligent people who had a point of view and who really broke this down, I think that that helped me Mm. it's not that i didn't understand the movie i did but it just it helped me really have a deeper appreciation for what it was Mm -hmm. and um and and yeah like to me this is a perfect argument for why we need film criticism still in the world yeah because you kind of come to the i mean i remember seeing this film for the first time when i was like i was a teenager um and being like i don't understand <laughs> like oh yeah I, I liked it in the sense that I liked the visuals I liked the HAL 9000 plot um I I understood at some level why this was so influential but I was just like I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from it right and then mm-hmm. I've seen it multiple times as I've gotten older I watched I didn't watch all of it last night but I watched a good bit of it last night and yeah, th- I think that as you kind of have seen it more times and then as you watch it more times and probably as you get older, you begin to realize like, oh, OK, I think I get what is being what is being said here. Right. At some level. Yeah. Um, so let's let's talk about the element of especially the element of the future here. Right. So you've got these like three sections, really, of the film. You've got the Dawn of Man, the HAL 9000 plot and then Jupiter and Infit and Beyond Infinity. Right. And the Jupiter Beyond Infinity section is, I think, probably that's the one that confounds people the most. 
Um, The most plot driven section of the film is very much the Hound 9000, but they're all connected by the advent, by the appearance of this monolith, um, which shows up initially in the Dawn of Man sequence and is kind of the, the beginning of human evolution, right? It's when humans begin to become human. Um, and, and is especially associated, interestingly enough, with violence. <laughs> um, and then it shows up again on the moon. Uh, and it's interesting, this film being made in 1968. So in, in 2001, according to Kubrick, we not only have been to the moon, but we have like colonies and space stations and people traveling across the galaxy, just like however they sort of feel like. <laughs> That's something um, I find fun about this movie is the fact that like so this this came out the year before the moon landing and um and then so now he's jumping forward like 30 years in time basically and it's like yeah that they would that they would imagine that all of this could happen in 30 years and yet when you look at you know a movie like Soiling Green which we're going to talk about next um that how that's like 50 years in the future you know it's it's just really interesting how people imagine the world would change so much in that time and we look back and we're like well it's definitely different technology wise but it's, the world hasn't doesn't look as different as they used to uh-huh. imagine that it would you know well yeah and it's it's interesting and i think that and we can talk about that when it comes to the different aesthetics of these three different films 2001 like you know when when you fast forward to 2001 and you're on like this lunar kind of airship right heading towards heading towards this colony or this this base on the moon and yeah everybody's wearing 60s fashions like Mm -hmm. it's very 1960s like all of the stewardesses are dressed like stewardesses in the 1960s so it's interesting like how the the so-called future and and we have to remember that the 1960s was really into futurism was really interested in like this whole futuristic aesthetic but it was it was what we now associate with being very 1960s Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so you know all of the stewardesses are dressing in in you know 1960s fashions they all have their hair done in the 60s fashions uh everybody the colors the yeah, yeah everything so, about it so it's this interesting balance between like this is the future according to you know 1968 but it is also the 1960s right <laughs> um yeah and and then when we get to so i think the what becomes really interesting and and where this film in particular in terms of the view of the future and the view of human evolution when you get to the hal 9000 section um and and essentially, you know, and we talked about this a little bit um, when we were discussing AI, Hal is being kind of the prototype for a lot of representations of AI, even to the point that Elon Musk recently referred to incorrectly, by the way, uh, <laughs> the Hal and how you know, we don't want that to happen. <laughs> and and Musk, I believe, said that, um, you know, the, that that Hal's whole problem is that when he makes him is when he um, he's asked to lie which is not true. Hal isn't asked to lie. At least we don't understand that Hal is asked to lie. No. He makes a mistake. Or yeah. he might have made a mistake. That's one of the interesting things. We, I, I've, I haven't seen this film in a while, but in watching this section again, I was like, oh, there's, it's never really established whether Hal did make a mistake. Right. It's, it's just, just a possibility that he might yeah. have. And, if, and, and so part of the whole conversation that Dave and Frank have is if Hal made a mistake, he's not reliable. 
And if he's not reliable, we can't keep him alive, basically. We can't allow him to continue to, to exist other than running the atom, the automatic functions of the ship because he's made an error and, and how computers are not supposed to make errors. Right. Um, and, and so what happens is that, that they're saying that if he's made a mistake, then we have to, we have to basically pull him apart. We have to decommission him. Um, but it's never established at any point, whether or not he did in fact make the mistake, whether, and at one point he says, well, it's human error. It's definitely and it's interesting because he never once says this it's not my error it's human error he says it's human error Mm -hmm. um and i think that you know that then begins to draw into the question which is uh, the central question of this section which is that is hal human as human or perhaps even more human than the human beings that he's interacting with um because one of the things that hal has done is that if he has made a mistake he is essentially trying to preserve his life and um, I, I once made the argument years ago that Hal is innocent, <laughs> that Hal is like, he's not. I mean, he does murder multiple people. Uh, Especially the people who are sound asleep through all of it and pose no threat to him whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and I, I think that the, that part of it is is that what we see is Hal panicking. Yeah. Right. He panics. He realizes that these two people who he think he treats as his friends, right, are essentially planning to kill him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if read through that lens, his behavior makes a lot of sense. Yeah. He he panics. He's like, I am going to do everything to preserve my my existence, my life. And he behaves in in a similar way that a human being would behave, in that he begins doing things that aren't terribly logical, but that are about this attempt and this desire to preserve himself and for him to survive. Um, and then ultimately, you know, it's the the sequence where um, Dave begins decommissioning him, begins pulling out his memory. I always find so heartbreaking. Oh, I know. <laughs> because it's it's all of that, you know, him saying, I'm afraid, I don't understand, I feel myself going, and then literally regressing back to childhood. And you hear him, you know, introducing himself for the first time and singing a song, you know, all of those things. It's really this bizarre emotional attachment that that I think the viewer is meant to experience to this AI who's a computer. He's not supposed to be human, but he is human. Um, and it's heartbreaking. It's like, this is sad. <laughs> but it's also fascinating because we don't know for sure that he is and there's actually a line one of them say i I can't remember if it's dave or frank um but they're talking about this like is it possible that he that he is you know human essentially how and the other one says well the that's the crazy thing is that i mean he said it differently but that's the crazy thing is that we can't know for sure Mm -hmm. (laughs) like there's no way to answer that question and so here even as this this scene is happening and and Hal is saying all these things that kind of tug at your heartstrings and you're like oh this poor guy you know he's he's being he's being killed right now um we don't know for sure that that he's not just reacting the way that a sentient being is supposed to react and that he's just you know regurgitating things that he's learned from all of his his well, yeah. programming and things you know like there's no way to know if he's just doing it to be manipulative or if he really <laughs> is you know tragically uh feeling himself dying 
And well, that's, and that's one of the things I find fascinating about it. Yeah, exa- exactly. That's the tension. I think there, there's also a line about, you know, does he have emotions? Right. Right. And they, they say something about, well, he's been programmed to, he's, essentially, he's been programmed to have emotions so that we have an easier time relating to him and talking yeah. to him. Right. And so so there is this then it, it then gets drawn out into the audience. Right. The audience experiencing emotional reaction to this machine dying. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're like, oh, this poor, he's regressing, you know, like all of the things that I just said. Right. He's like he's remembering <laughs> his childhood. He's losing his memory. You know, all of those things. <laughs> And, but and is he? Like, but is he? <laughs> he? He's a computer, right? Yeah. Um. And and it is that border between, you know, I, I think I said last week, human beings will pack bond with anything. Um. But it is that border between, you know, us assigning emotions and experiences to non sentient things, mm-hmm. right? But also crafting these things that we can relate to as human beings. And part of the tension also in in the Hal Nine Thousand sequence is the relative inhumanity of the human beings versus the very human reactions of how yeah and and i think that we don't get a lot of emotion even when um frank has been murdered and dave realizes that how has basically gone rogue right we don't really get a lot of emotion from dave we don't um he you know and how says oh i can tell that you're upset at one point <laughs> right and so there are certain things that we assign to dave because we're like of course he's upset he must be upset he's got to be upset right but we don't actually see much of that on the screen mm-hmm. um and and so you've got this this computer that is expressing all of you know panic anger fear um you know this loss of of memory loss of self all of that and you've got this this human who's becoming less and less identifiable as human in a lot of ways uh and i the film builds on that the film i i think that everything that leads up to that is also very important because you see those those sequences where like um, you know, the birth, the birthday, uh, I think it's Dave watches, you know, his parents wish him a happy birthday. So like yeah. and there's just no emotional connection between yeah. any of the human beings on the screen. And we never see human beings on Earth. We only see them on these space stations and on the moon and in various places. We never actually see what has happened to humanity on, on the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of the human beings that we do see are very detached and the most human figure on screen is a computer right is this thing that humans have assigned emotions to in order to make it more relatable yeah that's very true and i mean you even get that when they're having this conversation about this potential um um what's the word an outbreak of something and epidemic um, yeah yeah the epidemic and and everyone's very cold and emotionless talking about that and whether it's real whether they should do anything about it like yeah every everything that that you see every person that you see uh it it is it's very there's there's this very um strong sense of detachment like nobody like not just do they not emote but they just don't seem to have any real connection to each other or or to themselves or to what they're doing they're just kind of doing their job yeah well and let's talk really briefly about women (laughs) in this film (laughs) yeah because women are barely in this film and when they are there there are female characters Mm -hmm. um there are uh 
but most of it is focused on men and male. And so like even Hal, you know, Hal is male. All of the crew members on the, um, the discovery are male. Uh, all of, most of the, the focus, even on the apes early in the, the Dawn of Man sequence are male. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do kind of wonder whether I, I kind of, I want to avoid assigning too much feminism to someone like Kubrick, but I do kind of wonder whether a lot of this really is talking more about maleness than it is talking about humanity um, and about how maleness actually has become detached and become, you know, violent and, and the humanity of men is in question to some level. Um, because there, there are no, like the, there are women who are, uh, who serve, right? There's one woman who is, um, implication is she's part of a Russian delegation. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, there are very, very few female characters that have any kind of impact on the plot that have any kind of relation to the plot, but at the same time are not represented as being as detached and as emotionless as the men. Yeah. yeah i don't know i i don't i don't know it's funny because i I, when i was watching it last night and really thinking about that um i don't i don't want to make assumptions about kubrick or about the story and i have not read the story that this is based on but to me it just felt very much like yeah back in the 60s they couldn't imagine that women would be astronauts (laughs) and you know like it just it seemed to me and and again, I don't want to just assume this about Kubrick or, or anything, but to me watching it, it just felt like it just, this is what they see. Like, you know, women wouldn't have those types of jobs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, everything is being driven by maleness mm-hmm. at some level. And the evolution of humanity is being shown through a male lens. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think that also then there's a question of what what does that evolution actually look like? You know, if the evolution is ultimately to become these emotionless computers, right, or a world in which computers are more emotional, mm-hmm. what does that what does that say? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, any anything further that you want to say about two thousand one? Um, there were just a couple little things that just yeah. tickled me too, like, um, R.I.P. Pan Am. <laughs> like when he's on this uh this basically shuttle going up to the moon and and it's it's run by pan american and i was like oh pan am died in 1991 (laughs) (laughs) so oh you thought pan am would still be around that's cute yeah yeah but yeah just all those things and just details that just make it um uh, just kind of a weird and fun movie too like the food the way that they have to eat um uh, there was one part where um i think it's hey hayward hayworth um yeah hey haywood floyd yes haywood when he has to go to the bathroom and he's looking at this sign and there's this whole list of instructions for how to use a zero gravity toilet and i was like i would hold it <laughs> forever my bladder would have to explode because nope that is too hard well, there's just fun details like that and i mean it, yeah it does it does get really into the details ballet and and it's pretty accurate in a lot of them in terms mm-hmm. of what we know about what space travel is like and the things that the astronauts have to go through in order to um 
to in order to travel through space all those things so so a lot of it is very realistic in terms of understanding the way yeah. that the future is going to develop um i do think it's funny that that there is still this assumption that you know oh we're going to go to jupiter we're going to go mm-hmm. to mars we're going to have bases on the moon you know all, yeah. all of those things the cold war apparently is still going on in 2001 i mean um, that wasn't off by that many years it's true it's true <laughs> uh but but all of those things and i i do think that this is this is some this is a question i think that gets raised by all three of the films we're talking about is to what extent is are these films really thinking or or attempting to predict the true future and Mm -hmm. to what extent are they considering um here's something that could happen yeah or here here's a way to explore the problems that we're facing right now and the things that we're dealing with right now and the thematics that we're dealing with right now um, via this kind of futuristic setting of what could possibly happen. Yeah, like, so I remember when I was a kid in the 80s, you know, we would have these conversations about what it was going to be like in the year 2000. I remember sitting down and figuring out how old I was going to be in 2000. Um, and 23 sounded so old and grown up. <laughs> now I'm like, oh, <laughs> babies. Um, but you know, like I like so I think that 2001 um as a movie, and it's I think the story it's based on is called The Sentinel, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that they just kind of I don't think it was intended ever to be an actual prediction of what the world would look like in 2001 or what it could look like. I think it was just that was a point that was far enough in the future that seemed so futuristic because it's the next millennium um and it so it's it's just kind of a it it sounds really futuristic and so that's where we're gonna base it it's like mm-hmm. far enough away that it's you know it's got this kind of mysterious you know fun mystery about it but it's also close enough that it's like oh this is what you know the world could you know this the world's going to change a lot you know and yeah yeah yeah, and, and 2001 is very much in keeping with um, a lot of kind of the predictions about space travel and mm-hmm. and things like that from the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it's drawing that out in a lot of ways. Yeah. In general, movies that are set in the future, I think that there does tend to be some consideration of like what is realistic in this amount of time. But also, I think a lot of it is just playing around. Like, I remember when Minority Report came out back in, what, 2000 three four five something like that um i remember watching some things where steven spielberg was talking about having you know sitting down and having conversations with automakers and advertisers and fashion designers and all all kinds of people about realistically what do we expect the world to look like in 2054 which is when the movie takes place and i I don't think that that's usually the conversation i think a lot of times especially in movies like what we're going to talk about with back to the future too, you know, some of it is just like in the extremes of like, what could be really fun to have happen, you know, mm-hmm. instead of, instead of like a real examination of like, what direction are we really headed? Yeah. And, and at the, at the same time, and I think that we're, when we talk about soil and green, I think that we're going to get to this is that there, there is this undercurrent of what direction are we really headed in certain mm-hmm. of these films. Um, and actually, one of the films that I was thinking about that we didn't do for this this episode, um, but in looking for films that were like set in the future of 
the world of the film, right? Um, one of the films that came up was Things to Come, which is a 1936 British film that's based on a, an H.G. Wells story that's set, it's made in 1936. It's set initially in 1940 at the beginning of a world war. And mm. then fast forward 30 years where the world has been at war for 30 years. And so the next kind of section of the film takes place in 1970 where the world has like basically has forgotten what it was like to not exist without war. Um, and so it's a very futuristic film in a lot of ways, but it's it's distressing also to see a <laughs> film made in 1936 that is predicting this this massive war to happen in 1940. Um, wow. but, but then also the spinning out of like, okay, what is gonna happen as a consequence of this never ending war? Mm -hmm. um, and and I and I think in 1936 there was the a legitimate you know the the short story I think was written in 33, um, but there is this this legitimate you know if we do wind up in this massive war what is going to happen to us you know what is the future actually going to look like and I think that then when you get to something like Soylent Green which we'll talk about in a minute is is where you know it's beginning to take some of these real more realistic concerns of the contemporary moment in the in the case of things to come 1936 and projecting it forward and being like here's what could happen to us you know and it's always an extreme projection it's yeah. never like things will be pretty much the same but slightly different mm -hmm. um it's always like we've been at war for 30 years now <laughs> but but it's it's this kind of warning i guess that that the the stories kind of try to look at the, the science fiction itself tries to look at what are the possible consequences of our, our behavior right now right um uh, so but before i don't want to get to swim the green quite yet because we're not to 2022 yet uh instead we're in 2015 <laughs> <laughs> with Back to the Future Part 2, which was actually made in, when was it made? 1989, um, but set directly after Back to the Future Part 1, uh, which, as we remember, Mar Marty McFly goes back in time, saves his future, saves his parents' future, makes things even better. And then Doc Brown shows back up and says, like, we've got to do something about your kids. <laughs> and I... Again, I don't want to go through the entire plot of Back to the Future Part 2 because it is a bit confusing. I'd forgotten all of the like bouncing back and forth that this film actually does. <laughs> um, I really had only remembered the 2015 section. <laughs> mm. um, oh, yeah. And, and the, the sports almanac thing. I was just like, oh, yeah, I recall this now. But uh, but yeah, let's talk about this. This is, if possible, more confusing Um update i guess of back to the future part one in which they actually go to the future finally and the future is interesting i have to say it is an interesting vision of what 2015 <laughs> looks like and as with you know so many people were like i'm pissed off that there are no hoverboards you know what i'm pissed off about i'm pissed off that we were not all dressing in like neon mad max style i'm mad that i don't have self-driving self-drying clothes yeah that's that's a good point. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a mm -hmm. lot of stuff that was just like and and I would not say that it was necessarily a possible thing, but it's just like, yeah, why are <laughs> neon Mad Max style? I'm just like, we could have dressed like that. Why didn't we? We right? should have. <laughs> we should have. Yep. Yeah. Well, there's still time. 
there's still time. You know, there are some things that I feel like the movie got really right. I mean, obviously, it's a very um, comic look. It's crazy that the whole Cubs winning the World Series was only off by a year. Because yeah. that happened the next year. <laughs> that was yes. so nuts. And we should um, all remember that it, it was a fucking joke in 1989. This is like, this yeah. is impossible. Yeah. Like it had never, it, it had not happened in almost 100 years by that point. And the, yeah. Anyway. Um, and it took until 2016 for it to finally happen. But, um, but like the Jaws sequels, obviously we, they stopped at four, but you know, just the sequelitis in general, like we have so many franchises now, everything has to have sequels. So that, that joke was like a joke about Jaws, but it was very accurate to where we're at with movies nowadays, you know, and then like the, the eighties nostalgia when they have that 80s cafe and you know and things like mm-hmm. that it was just like oh my gosh yeah like the culturally i think that they hit a lot of things pretty pretty right on um <laughs> with, with the movie so um like free, freeze-dried pizza that you rehydrate in the microwave obviously <laughs> that's not really real but that that convenience food is very accurate you know that kind of thing um mm-hmm. the uh, the fact that that faxes had come and gone and become dated by 2015 is pretty funny but like the wall of video screens and stuff like that yeah. it's just like oh yeah totally have that you know yeah the the whole concept of the video phone or the video call which has come up in so many different sci-fi stories and films and everything and I, they were right absolutely 100 percent mm-hmm. yeah i mean there's even um like going back to 2001 really quickly the message that he gets from his parents i was laughing because i was like oh my gosh it's like his parents sent him a marco polo (laughs) i do that with my friends all the time we all use marco polo and send each other video messages (laughs) so yeah but um but i i think overall i really love just the the fun and creativity that they got to have with back to the future too and imagining like Ooh, what could the world, what could this part of the world look like 30 years from now? And just mm-hmm. going to some, some kind of extremes while also dosing it in a little bit of, of reality too. Yeah. And, and I, I think that the whole Biff becomes this all powerful casino guy. And, <laughs> and I did, I mean, it's, it's been talked about that he was deliberately based on Trump. Um, yeah. But it's, distressing to say the least that in this kind of alternate universe 2015 biff has like all of this power and all this prestige and he's just like run everything else down and everything else has become worse and you know and then for for us that's supposed to be an alternate 1985 oh it's 1985 no yeah yeah well because what happens is yeah yeah, biff finds the almanac goes back to 1955 gives it to himself and then in 1985 yeah. yeah So by 2015, he could be president. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, yes, it's very upsetting. I found it very upsetting. I think that's very one much. of the one of the reasons why I have not watched this this particular film uh, as much as like the first one, um, which is exactly that. Just like I don't like this. I don't like this world. <laughs> please mm-hmm. don't. Please don't let this happen. Um, I I did. There are elements of this one that I really do enjoy. Actually, in rewatching it, I was like, oh, this is this is a lot of fun. Like. Um, doc brown's entire description of what can happen the time traveler paradox right which is what if i meet myself you know what happens if i meet myself and i like that his Mm -hmm. well could be nothing or it could be the implosion of the universe (laughs) right 
<laughs> it's like, we just don't know. Yeah. So, so best practice is we avoid it all together. Yeah. Like, let's just avoid the problem. And then we don't have to find out if it's the worst case scenario. <laughs> but I like that it just gets written off in that way. I was, I was just like, could be bad, could be good. We don't know. <laughs> We're not mm-hmm. certain. But uh, let's just not do it because if it's bad, it's really bad. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, go, going to some of like the aesthetics, you know, and, and you know, the kind of joke that has that been about Mad Max aesthetics. Again, like much like 2001, it's very much the 1980s, but more so in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the representations of what 2015 is going to look like and, and everything. But I, it is interesting how all of the films we're talking about have actually influenced the future, right? And so it's this interesting kind of conundrum where you've got representations of the future then influence marketing going into the future. So, you know, even some of the jokes about, you know, how dare you, I don't have a hoverboard yet. Um, but like the marketing of those really stupid little two-wheeled things that people were referring to as hoverboards right and and the way that they are just like oh it's just like back to the future just like no it's not it's not an actual hoverboard that's what i want i want a hoverboard um but but that kind of like the way in which these films actually do influence the way that the future winds up looking because they become iconic so, so much of the future in, in various representations of it still looks like 2001 A Space Odyssey because of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Um, we have this whole idea of futurism and futuristic design, and it's still that kind of 1960s Art Deco uh, look because of 2001. Yeah. Slightly less so when it comes to Back to the Future, but... Um, but but even then, like a lot of, you know, uh, even later films that are representations of the future, if you look a lot of a, a lot of cyberpunk style, it's very much in in uh, conversation with the representations of fashion and things like that in Back to the Future. Um, and, and like you say, it's that kind of projecting forward of like, it's possible that this could be happening. Right. Um, versus versus, you know, this is just extreme and, and you know, understand that um, one of the things I, I do like about the the three films that we're talking about is there are a lot of, of futuristic films that are set like the year 3100. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So, so far in the future that it's like, OK, it's not even, you know, it's not going to be within living memory. All of these films are within potential living memory. So, you know, a film made in 1989 being set in 2015 all of these people are still going to be alive, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the director, the actors, everybody are still like, they're going to know, right? It's it's not so far in the future that the people who are watching it now are not going to, you know, have the experience of that actual time period. And it does kind of invite that that sort of, well, you were wrong, weren't you? <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember, so uh, back to the future, Hill Valley, like that whole town square and stuff, that's, um that was all filmed at universal studios um on the back lot and it's part of the tram tour that you can take and um they've actually filmed tons of stuff there but it's really it's most easily recognizable is back to the future and um and i remember one time years ago i was in high school and so this would have been in the 90s and we were we were at universal studios we were on the tour and the tour guide said that the um the crew from back to the future 2 was planning on having a big party in 2015 
um, to celebrate and to see how, how right and how wrong they were with their predictions. And then I, I was so tickled when 2015 came around and there was so much, like just so much, um, um, marketing, but also just like all these fun parties and celebrations and things surrounding that we had arrived at the, the future of back to the future. And, um, like they had a thing with, um, they had the DeLorean and Doc Brown's van in the parking lot at the mall where the, where that whole scene was filmed. Mm -hmm. Um, when Marty first goes into the past, um, that was filmed at the, um, uh, the Pointy Hills mall here in Southern California. And, um, and so they actually had all that set up. They just had so many things that were just kind of like celebrating this movie that, you know, we had all loved since the eighties and um, it was fun, but I don't know if that party happened. I'm sure it probably did. <laughs> <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's bizarre. It It is interesting to like watch these films set in the future that is now the past that we've mm-hmm. been through and that you know you see where they were right and where they were very very wrong right and whether yeah. that even matters right right um, i also just wanted to say really quickly about back to the future too yeah. i do love um that <laughs> that michael j fox plays both of his kids <laughs> yes I, you know, I was like, who the hell is playing his daughter? I don't understand. And then I looked it up. I was like, oh, okay. That makes sense. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so the, the final film we wanted to talk about takes place in 2022. So not that long, really, after Back to the Future Part 2. Yeah. Um, but man, things have really gone downhill. This really, <laughs> this really is the world in which Biff becomes president. Um, yeah unfortunately so we want to talk about soylent green uh a a film that was made in 1973 uh based on a novel actually uh written in 1966 and the book the the story is set in 2022 where basically the world has become overpopulated and it's a combination of overpopulation and pollution and um everything has has essentially gone to hell uh, New York City is an absolute war zone, which, again, in considering that this film was made in 1973, I find a bit funny um, <laughs> and has like a 40 million uh, person population. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it is it is completely overrun. And in the midst of all of this is Charlton Heston playing a um, a New York City cop who begins investigating some uh, the death of a particularly high-ranking person who's involved in the Soylent company, which produces the sort of high-protein-based food that, uh, that they hand out to all of the poor people because all of the poor people need to, to be able to survive. This, it's supposed this, to be like a superfood made out of yeah. plankton that they've yeah. found to solve their food crisis. And only the really rich can afford things like, you know, clean water and actual real food and <laughs> yeah, carrots and tomatoes and meat. Uh, and apparently women that they refer to as furniture, <laughs> which we will talk about in a minute. Oh, yes, we will. Um so I, I think that the twist of Soylent Green is so well known. <laughs> and it's it's interesting to watch this film. I, I kind of wished 
that I didn't know it because I I wanted to know like what the did people know did people have like a major reaction to this when this film came out in 1973 um because it's it's an interesting film in that most of the film is not really it's not about finding out what what is in Soylent right right? it's nobody questions it really yeah it, it just it becomes this element with his investigation of the the death of this the apparent murder right of this this man and the fact that suddenly a lot of different people seem to be really interested in him or following him around try to kill him things like that um and it becomes clear that like something is being concealed and it, it becomes clearer and clearer that it's about the production um particularly of soylent and of soylent green and that that twist is horrifying in one sense but also especially in the contemporary moment where you have so many different movies about cannibalism (laughs) that's just like well yeah that makes sense yeah yeah it's funny because it's like in in 1973 i'm sure that i mean it's not that it's not horrifying but i'm sure that was like a huge shocking revelation and in 2023 watching it it's like well yeah that's not really surprising that some corporation would be doing that yeah yeah it's it's an interesting kind of um there's a dissonance i think between watching this film now in 2023 only a year after the film is set Mm -hmm. and about uh, 50 years after it was made yeah and 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 the film being made in 1973 um, I think in some ways, actually, the more disturbing elements, I think, of Soylent Green are these things that people have talked about as being a prescient film. I don't think it's a prescient film. Um, I, I, I have to say, I, New York City is not overrun. It's <laughs> <laughs> I do have an apartment here. It's a nice apartment. <laughs> <laughs> it's a comfortable apartment. Um, we do have a housing crisis, though, but it is not the same kind of housing crisis as represented in Southern Ukraine. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, some of those those kind of projections of the destruction of the world based because of pollution and overpopulation, right? And just the unwillingness of humanity to um, to do anything about it. The the I think some of the most disturbing sequences are actually like the scene where Charlton Heston brings home um fresh vegetables and meat and Saul, played by Edward G. Robinson, like breaks down in tears, essentially, because he's seeing meat for the first time in forever, right? And it's implied that a lot of what has happened um to the world has essentially happened in a single generation. That you've yeah. got older people who do remember you know i remember plants and trees and flowers and um being able to buy eggs in the supermarket and things like that and so it's been this very accelerated kind of destruction of the world destruction of the environment um and there are those those elements that are not so much prescient as yes i understand this fear i guess um, that's that you know not being able to to buy fresh food and that is mm-hmm. and that is true for a lot of people around the world i think that one of the things that it does is projects it onto someplace like new york city versus you know setting this in in another country or or elsewhere there's never really any clarity about what's going on in the rest of the world or even in um, the rest of the country like what does the yeah. midwest look like you know yeah exactly mm-hmm. but a lot of it is really because of over overcrowding overpopulation and um that leading to to pollution i guess there is a part where um charlton heston makes a 
he, he makes a comment or, or something to somebody where he said like once he's once he's realizing what's really going on um or that there's a bigger problem happening and he makes a statement about um that the plankton is running out like the the ocean is polluted too yeah and so it's like there is that sense that this is a global crisis but we never see anything outside of this very specific world of new york city yeah it's it's very close and there there's there's an implication that probably most people don't know what's going on outside of new york city most people within that the city don't really know what's going on outside of it um which when you're suffering that much like do you really yeah. care you, you know you wouldn't like, know yeah, it becomes you, about just surviving day to day. Exactly. And that, and that's very much what the film represents. Um, and then you all, it, there's also the representation of the stratification between the rich and the poor. The rich actually, mm -hmm. you know, having nice apartments, um, yeah. having having access to not tons of, but some fresh fruit and vegetables and dairy and all of those different things. And so it really is about the poor also not having and and there is very much like there's the rich and there's the poor mm -hmm. um there I, there are some hints about the possibility of the existence of the middle class because one of the things i was thinking about and watching re-watching the film this time was because we've got all of these like workers right who work at like the soylent factory or at the um the, the old person disposal units what um <laughs> like so they're they're like workers who are doing those kinds of jobs right so they're not and it, it, it's that kind of question of like okay are they also living in like burned out vehicles or do they have apartments or are they living more like charlton heston is who is who has a two-bedroom apartment apparently in manhattan and a library <laughs> and a library i know i was watching it just like look i'm not saying that like it's not bad but also like that's not a bad apartment <laughs> Yeah, that also was an interesting uh, prediction about paper running out, though. Yeah, <laughs> like because we're having that problem now of they're not printing as many books now because paper is in short supply. And yeah, mm -hmm. anyway, I just thought that was interesting. But uh, yeah, he's got so it's it's kind of funny, like the part where he brings home the, the books to uh, Edward G. Robinson's character, Saul. And he's just like, oh, wow, books printed on real paper. I'm like, look behind you. You're sitting in front of a whole wall of books printed on actual <laughs> paper. <laughs> but anyway. Well, yeah, it's it's a there. there's the implication that books are very scarce or have become yeah. very scarce and like actual physical books. Right. And um, yeah, there are a whole bunch of questions that aren't answered. Like it's never really clear how much media and entertainment there is in this world is there media and entertainment or is it just like a never-ending cycle of suffering mm -hmm. <laughs> um for for most people except for the really really rich and things like that let's let's talk about the really really rich let's talk about the furniture um yeah. and and i just want to say about all three of these films women barely exist in the future for any of these three films and i'm including back to the future in that because like they just knock out poor elizabeth like twice mm -hmm. and she's got you know a couple of scenes and that's pretty much it she has almost no influence on the plot or anything like that his mother has a little bit more but even she is just like oh and then she marries biff why did she biff right why did she, she like she has a choice to not marry biff even if his father is dead 
Mm-hmm. Like there's there's all kinds of questions. They're just like, so do women have autonomy in this world? Like in this futuristic world, like even in this horrible dystopian future of soil and green, just like so women just just are there to like fuck dudes or to suffer, like one or the other. That's pretty much what they're there for. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is why we need more movies made by women. <laughs> well, it, but it re- yeah. No, go ahead. I, I was. I, it reminds me a lot of Blade Runner twenty forty nine, actually, which mm-hmm. uh, I do think takes some of its cues from Soylent Green. Oh yeah, definitely. So sorry, I yeah. interrupted you. No, that's okay. No, I wanted to hear your thoughts. So, but yes, absolutely, I would say that's true. Um, and. Blade Runner 2049, we we don't want to go down the road of the Blade Runner conversation all over again, but I think that it um it does uh sort of you know, actually thinking kind of thinking about it, kind of does something similar to what Back to the Future One and Two do. Not intentionally, I don't think, <laughs> but uh, because like in Back to the Future Part One, um you you have Lorraine as the mom when it's in 1985 their you know their life is just kind of whatever it's not very exciting she's constantly complaining about um you know about like girls chasing boys and things but then when you go back to 1955 and you see that's exactly the girl that she was and she had a you know a lot of opinions and she kind of just did whatever she wanted to do um, before growing up and deciding that no nice girls don't do that you know and then in 1985 or sorry in 2015 in the future you see a lot less of women just kind of anywhere um but and and you kind of see that in in the Blade Runner movies too like in Blade Runner um it's not about the women but you have women with more autonomy and then in 2049 it's like they're they're there um the ones that have some autonomy, like it's really not as um, uh, honest as as they like to present. Like it's 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 in it's still in service to men, even if they're trying to pretend that it's not. Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of there there are a lot of futuristic stories that tend to essentially posit a dystopian world in which women are just sex workers. Yeah, like and not and not like happy sex workers not like this is what i want to do <laughs> right this is what they have to do right yeah and so it a lot of these films really do not recognize the existence of women this this is the future right if this is the future that women will will occupy mm-hmm. um and they can't conceive of a future in which that doesn't happen right, right? and it's like well you know and i always think about vienna's statement about you know well the world is is difficult for women the world is bad to women it's just like but why is that the only future that you can imagine and i think that that what is distressing about it is not a specific film but the fact that this happens over and over and over again in Mm -hmm. these dystopian narratives and in these future narratives where the only use that women have are as mothers right and there are right. women in Soil and Green who are usually depicted as like these kind of rag ragamuffins <laughs> um, mm-hmm. dying on the streets with their children tied to their wrists and things like that, or as sex workers, as prostitutes, yeah. as things that are as things that literally treated as things. Right. Um, and- Whereas when you get a movie that's directed by written by women, you get 
uh, you know, freedom fighters like in the Matrix. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I wouldn't say that, you know, every single film is like this, but there are so many that actually only envision that kind of a future for women. It's much more common than it's not. And when yeah. when it's when this isn't the future that's depicted, it feels more like it doesn't feel like it's coming necessarily from an, a place of honesty. It feels more like a piece, a place of um, trying to placate, I guess. Yeah, I'm trying to think of an example and I can't right now, but. Because I'm, I'm actually every example I'm thinking of women really don't have much of a role. <laughs> If women have a role at all, it is to have sex with men. <laughs> that's that's yeah, the much. whole role. Um, but they literally call them furniture. <laughs> yeah, and and I think in that, green. And yeah, exactly. And I think that it's supposed to be kind of shocking in a, to a certain yeah. sense that like you know this isn't a good thing really, but it's it's still going back to that you know and there, there's there's that whole scene where he like just shows up at the apartment and it's just like you know get on the bed and all that and it's just like you're the hero. Like you're mm-hmm. supposed to be the good guy and you're just like, and and it's obvious that the way the film is depicting this is that these women are meant to be available to any man who who's, who asks them, right? Yeah. Well, she even says, because he's like asking if she's going to stay at the apartment and she says, well, it depends on if the next tenant likes me. Yeah. And yeah. So it's this very dystopian view, but at the same time, there is something, there's something quite self-serving and very, ultimately very unimaginative. Mm-hmm. um yeah you know the these men you have to have a of... sex scene for charlton heston i guess <laughs> <laughs> he's so irresistible oh, uh, with that hot comb over hairy chest it is a very <laughs> i i you know said said it said this about every single one of these films actually it's a very 1970s film yeah um and again you know going back to those aesthetics this is the 1970s in the future like like it's not it does barely even tries in a lot of ways to to make this be like ah yes it's possible that fashions will have changed like no fashions will stay exactly the same the tvs like they can't even imagine a tv looking different you know yeah <laughs> like everything about it the, phones, the sideburns like, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah sideburns the hairstyles yeah, um, they just they cannot imagine things changing. I guess, and and in terms of the influence on the future, uh, uh, when it comes to Soylent Green, I mean, Soylent Green is actually a very influential film. Um, I think the first time I even heard reference to it was on The Simpsons, which seems to be a a element that runs through my childhood. <laughs> um, but but also, it's prompted an actual health food product called Soylent, which I, I will never ever eat. Well, and I remember when this thing came out and I was like, does that, I mean, I, I'm trying, I'm trying to puzzle through the purpose behind this because it, the whole point of Soylent Green is that Soylent Green, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the film and has managed to avoid the spoiler, but Soylent Green is people. <laughs> it's, it is people. It's, it's dead bodies that have been processed <laughs> into, you know, high protein, little green squares right and the idea of like a, a a health food company then taking that concept and being like oh here is soylent it's a high protein it's like no i'm not gonna touch anything that is has weird colors and is called soylent <laughs> nope no <laughs> if you google soylent um one of the questions that comes up is what is soylent made of made from and i was really expecting the answer to be people 
It's not. It says it's soy protein. But how do we really know? They said it was plankton in the movie. They did. They like, did. Type well, protein. And there was just a lady like- yelling soil, or selling soylent yellow, which she said was made from soy. <laughs> how do you know? How do you know? We're, that's the thing. Our food supply is based on trust. We are trusting people to put into our food what they say they put into it. Well, and you know, not not to not to make it too serious, uh, but but yeah, I mean, and things have come out fairly recently about you know the whole aspartame thing, which we've known yeah. was not was not good, but it's becoming clearer and clearer that it's like actively bad for you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and like all kinds of things that were just sort of like, yeah, sure, put it in, you know, too much. There's too much heavy metals in certain chocolates it's like wait a minute why are there there's heavy metals in chocolate now um <laughs> there's like all sorts of shit that you're just like wait what what yeah. i still you know i i've i've drunk red bull off and on my entire life and uh and i'm still just like what is actually in red bull yeah it doesn't taste like anything real it tastes it's like not. chemicals yeah it's not real it isn't no. real i just pretend <laughs> i just pretend that it's like okay <laughs> sometimes you just need a good red bull that's the thing like sometimes you just need it but it does not taste like anything that's it doesn't taste like an actual um flavor found in nature <laughs> at all taurine what the fuck is taurine i, I don't even know <laughs> i think this is like, that's the thing like they're just making stuff up and putting it in our food and we just go sure thank you <laughs> so but we also can buy real food i went to the store yesterday and i bought you know eggs and it didn't have to pay $150 an egg. So, you know, <laughs> there's that. Yes, same. So let us embrace the beauty that is all around us. Like the fact that we can buy eggs. <laughs> not for long. And that <laughs> my apartment is mine and it is not dependent on the next person that moves in. <laughs> <sighs> Anyways, any final thoughts on, on Soylent Green or indeed on any of these films? um i'm really glad we don't live in any of those futures yes, although some too. of the things in back to the future part two look fun but uh in general i'm glad that the future didn't turn out the way that those filmmakers imagined it <laughs> me too me too well all of these films can indeed be watched on on various streaming uh apparati i guess uh 2001 is available on on max hbo max I'm going to call it HBO Max forever and forever. <laughs> um, Back to the Future 2 is, as far as I can tell, you if, if you have a cable subscription, you can watch it on TNT or TBS. But um, I just rented it. It was, cost three bucks on um, all of the various services. And Soylent Green is also available to rent. And it might possibly be available on the Internet Archive if you were the sort of person who wanted to watch it on the Internet Archive, which it may be on. Possibly. Um, possibly. <laughs> in other words I you can watch it. all of these films <laughs> yeah you can watch all of these films and also let us know what you think of them uh sorry if we have spoiled if we have spoiled soylent green for you um, if we have spoiled i would love to know if there's someone who didn't know that soylent green was people yes even I, I mean, I don't think I'd actually seen Soylent Green until a couple of years ago. And I knew I was like, yeah, Soylent Green is people. It's famous. Everybody knows Soylent Green is yeah. people. 
It's funny though, because there was this whole thing that came up on Instagram on a couple of feeds I follow this week about like the Mandela effect and remembering things incorrectly. And, you know, one of them was like often misquoted lines. And so when I was watching Soiling Green yesterday, and there's a part where like right at the end when Charlton Heston says, it's people, Soylent Green is made out of people. And I was just like, wait, does he not say the line Soylent Green is people? And I was so confused. And then a, like a couple seconds later, he does. And I was like, okay, I feel so much better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was ready it, to be really like so mad and confused. It's like the, ve- it's the very last line. It's the last line. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's like mm-hmm. screaming it. Soylent Green is people. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, so yeah, all all of these films obviously are are worth watching. Definitely, if you haven't seen two thousand one, man, like watch it now. It it is an experience, definitely. It really um, is. And and I do think as as we've been talking about, I think that it it gets richer upon multiple viewings. That you know, it's mm-hmm. such a it's so weird when you watch it for the first time, and then the more that you watch it, the more kind of you're able to get into the rhythm of it. I think. Yeah. So definitely give all of those a shot. And uh, and yeah, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We, of course, want to thank our lovely patrons um, who are being very kind and continuing to support this the show on our Patreon. And they are Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Judy, Karen, Cariata, Lauren, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, and Tao. Thank you so much for continuing to support us, you guys. Um, the The Patreon issue seems to have been resolved. It doesn't look like anyone got removed or anything like that. But if you do have issues, um, you get kicked off or something gets flagged as fraud, please do let us know. Also, let us know if you are still owed buttons, stickers, etc. And please send us your U.S. mailing address. Um, I can't I can't mail anything to you if I don't have your address. Uh, and if you want to join their number, um, we are on patreon.com slash citizen dame. We also have a Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod and a ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. But the best way is really to support us on Patreon. And um, and you also get fun little things and bonus episodes. We had our Mission Impossible bonus episode and we're gonna have a few more fun things coming up uh, this month, hopefully. You can also go to our website, that's citizendamepod.com, where there are reviews and editorials and other fun little things. And you can get in touch with us so many different ways. You can send us an email, citizendamepod at gmail.com. We're also on the various socials, including Twitter and Instagram. We are at citizendamepod. We're on Blue Sky now. Thank you, Karen. We're on Blue Sky. That's citizendamepod at bluesky.social. So definitely check us out there. Because Twitter is just going to hell in a handbasket. Um, yeah, is then, Twitter a thing anymore? I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I go on there, they're trying to sell me marijuana bites or AI services. It's getting very weird. Yep. Um, <laughs> we also have our letterbox. That's uh, at Citizen Dame. And that's where we also provide links for our episodes. Definitely give us a follow on letterbox because especially as Twitter is dying, um, we're going to try to, you know, shift a whole bunch of focus over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can get in touch with us and fellows individually. I am on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd at LH Business. Karen, where are you? I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. And that will close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.
taxi cab. What do you mean a taxi cab? I thought we were flying. Precisely. All right, Doc, what's going on, huh? Where are we? When are we? We're descending toward Hill Valley, California, at 4.29 p.m. on Wednesday, October 21st, 2015. 2015? You mean we're in the future? Future, Marty, what do you mean? How can we be in the future? Uh, Jennifer, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're in a time machine. 